days. All right. Well, Christian, thank you for the prayer this morning. We're going to jump into our series. If you haven't been with us, we're in the book of Matthew in chapter 13, and we're doing a little mini-series on this chapter called The People of God's Kingdom. If you've been with us, you know that this is our third part uh, of this message, of this chapter, and this series, and we'll continue on. Uh, Next week, I'm thinking we'll probably take a break because it's Mother's Day. Okay, everybody, don't forget that. Mother's Day, right? Moms, give the elbow this way. You heard what the preacher said. It's Mother's Day. And so I'm thinking we'll honor you ladies next week. And so uh, we'll skip a week and come back to Matthew. So today's title, though, in this particular section is titled Becoming a Citizen of God's Kingdom. Okay, now I'm just following the flow as the Lord is giving it to us as he makes known what he wants us to know. So you've been standing, but I'm going to ask you to stand as we always do in honor of the word of the Lord. We're just going to read a couple verses here beginning in verse 44 through 46. Be very familiar to you. This is again as Jesus speaking. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. All right. Amen. You may be seated. I always feel like I need to catch people up who may not have been here. And we've had a couple weeks break now because of Easter and whatnot. And so uh, I just want to go back and reiterate a couple points. And number one is, is that, as you know, as Matthew has been recording all of this for us, that Jesus has been teaching all along on the kingdom of God. Uh, that's been his message from the beginning, even from the Sermon on the Mount back in the earlier chapters, after we were introduced to who Jesus is through his birth and all that and whatnot. Uh, he begins his ministry by teaching, doing miracles, and predominantly about how this kingdom of heaven really is and what it's like. And also you'll remember now, as we got into chapter 13, and we'll see even more, that Jesus did a lot of teaching through parables. A simple way to remember a parable is it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Just an easy way to remember that. And Jesus was absolutely a master at it. One of the most recognized is what we've finished just a couple weeks ago was the parable of the seed and the soil. You remember that? And we, we really identified three different types of people that Jesus wanted us to understand, and that is... Or those are the people who hear the message of God. They audibly hear, they intellectually hear, but they reject it as either false or nonsense. That's the seed that falls on the hard ground. There's others then who, when they hear the message, they take it into themselves, if you will, in in a certain sense. But when the criticisms of the world or the persecutions of the world arise and come against them, then they also turn away. And then there are others who hear and follow, who until the worries of life, the cares of this life, the Lord puts it, and that can be a a multitude of things, as you well know, uh, they then fall to the pressure of those things and also turn away from the truth of God. And then, of course, the final one was those who hear the word and it sinks into their hearts, not only intellectually, but they become true believers and true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So... If you're a disciple and you're following along with Jesus, you know, you're learning what he's teaching as much as he's teaching you individually. There must have been that thought that after all they're hearing from him now, not just in these parables, but in all the teachings, 
probably questions like, how then is a person supposed to enter into the kingdom? I mean, if it's not about, and they're thinking as Jews, of course, because that's who the disciples were, if it's not about keeping the law or just because we're a part of the seed of Abraham, and you know, Paul the apostle will correct that later in Romans, but if it's not about that and doing our diligence to keep up with what the Pharisees teach us and the scribes, then who then can really enter into the kingdom? And so Jesus, in his wisdom, obviously knows that that's the heart of the people, and so he continues on in his illustrations of what we have here this morning, and that is saying, basically, that the kingdom of God is like, and let's just take this first one, a hidden treasure, like a hidden treasure. And he used that illustration because in Jesus' day, he would have understood that people would have done just that. They would have hidden their treasures. That was a common thing for them to do. They would bury it literally to keep it safe from robbers. That's pretty easy to understand because in those days there were no banks as we know of them today. And so they would bury whatever they wanted to keep from being stolen, uh, which could be anything, quite honestly. It could be food. It could be clothing. It could be certainly monetary, money in, its, in itself. Whatever they considered to be valuable, they would literally bury in some safe place, some place that nobody knew anything about. And again, instead of going to the bank or like we would, an ATM or using Venmo or some app, you know, the disciples didn't have access to that kind of thing. And so they would go to their hiding place and they would bury their stash trying to keep it safe. Now, because of the need for keeping it safe over time, if you can imagine being in Israel, Israel became an area like many parts of the world, because this was a common practice, not just in Israel, but specifically speaking about Israel this morning, became a storehouse in the earth, if you will, of valuables. There would be various places around the, the, the country there that people would have buried something. And it was because of those secret places that often uh, a person wouldn't tell anybody. That was the purpose, right? That would be kind of understood. Uh, and so problems would arise when that person would die because if they hadn't passed on where the hidden treasure is, then nobody else is going to know about it. And so it became a problem, or at least there were treasures that were left in certain places uh, without any knowledge to somebody else or for whatever reason known to anybody else. Sometimes it was just simply because people just couldn't remember where they buried stuff. And that would be a real bummer, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, you would hope it would be something of less value than something else. You wouldn't think somebody had something really valuable would forget where they put it, unless maybe they're getting older and they just simply couldn't remember. And you know how the brain works with all of that. So when somebody would come along, and let's use Jesus' parable now here, such like a or such as a hired worker, and that was very common in the day, would be doing work in a field, plowing probably, and evidently, according to Jesus is saying here, stumble across the bag of loot, or this prized treasure, whatever it is, until normally they would do like most people would think, I don't want anybody to know about this, and so I'll wait until the cover of darkness, and I'll come back, and I'll unearth it, and I'll take it for myself, and nobody will know anything about it. Now, interestingly, according to Jesus, we find that this field didn't belong to the man, which is why he was so joyful when he found it. And that's pretty important. He didn't know it was there. 
And so it was obviously a great find. But there's a major difference in Jesus' parable and how the normal fleshly mind might operate in this. And Jesus makes this pretty clear. And that's because what was more common for the person was to hide the treasure and just take it when nobody was looking. But this man actually goes back to get it after, if you're listening to the text carefully, he goes back after he has earned enough money to buy the field so that the field would rightfully belong to him. And that's an important point because there have been people over the years who have criticized Jesus' parable here thinking that he's teaching some things that would maybe be immoral or whatever. We'll talk about that more in just a second. But that's basically the emphasis of the first parable. Let's think about the second one for a minute. It's basically the same, but just a couple of distinctions. Uh, if you're listening to it, it talks about pearls, and you know as much as I do that pearls found in the wild are extremely valuable. And you know, I'm saying it that way because there are pearls that are cultured today or, or fabricated. Those are the lesser expensive ones. And the reason pearls are so valuable, I don't have to tell the ladies this, guys, you might need to know this, you probably already do, but some of you might need to know this, that it's not just a beautiful little white little marble on their neck, but it actually, or their wrist or wherever they choose to wear it, but it's actually because no two pearls are exactly alike. And that's because of the way that they're made. They're different in size, different in their luster or their sheen because they're made by these mollusks in the sea. And then not to mention how difficult it is to actually obtain one of these prized jewels. In fact, when it comes to natural pearls, if you've ever studied how they're harvested, you know, years ago, and let's keep our mind in the context here for a minute, divers would have to risk their lives literally to go down into the riverbeds or into the ocean depths, wherever these oysters or clams or whatever mollusk it was that was uh, creating this thing, and risk their lives going down to try to find them. And the chance of finding one statistically was about 1 in 10,000. Now, that's not a great job in my estimation, but if you find the prize one, then you're more than likely going to find something very valuable. In fact, in Jesus' day, pearls were owned by very, very, very few people because of what I'm saying. I mean, that's how critical these things were, how valuable these things were. And it was mostly the elite that did own them, like the Roman emperors, the people of the highest of, of society, or queens of nations. In fact, Cleopatra, you know that name, is said to have had two pearls that were in her day worth well over several million dollars. And so those were the people that could afford these kind of things. So you can understand as Jesus is giving this illustration, this parable about the kingdom of heaven and this merchant, which is basically just a wholesale dealer. That's what the word really represents. A person who does their business in that realm would find this in such a rare situation He would do everything he could to obtain it. That's obvious. And in this particular case, this one pearl was evidently the mother of all pearls. And so he sold everything that he had to have this one. Now, as you think about these two parables, I think it's understandable why these treasures are so valuable and why it would get the attention of the people. Again, Jesus was a master at really touching the mind of people and capturing their attention. But the question still is, why is Jesus, if he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, using an illustration of valuables hidden in the dirt 
or buried beneath the earth's surface or pearls from a merchant. They don't seem to go together. Well, the answer really is first found in its understanding of what his, his Jesus' understanding or meaning of what the kingdom of God really is. In fact, really what he's talking about is not the physical kingdom, although that's very real, and we'll talk about that also in just a second. But Jesus is wanting the people listening to him that he's not talking about just a commodity to be gained. The kingdom of heaven is not just something to achieve or to gain for oneself. Jesus is really talking about the kingdom of heaven as being the realm of salvation. He's teaching the people what salvation really is. And so we have to shift our thinking just a little bit and go away from this place, although it is a physical place where God reigns. He's really dealing with the whole issue of salvation and specifically that the gift of salvation is available to everyone who puts their hope and their trust in Christ. In other words, you and I get the distinct privilege, and I hope you think about this often, of literally going to God's kingdom. But what we all must know is that the kingdom of heaven is only given to those who are saved, saved from their sinfulness, which again is the message that Jesus is proclaiming. And so the parables are about the value of salvation, the value of knowing God in our hearts, not just one day saying, like most of the world, well, of course I'm going to heaven. That's the stopping point. If you talk to the average person out here in the world about spiritual things, no one's going to deny, unless they're just being totally rebellious or fully demonically controlled, would deny the joy of the longing of going to this place, this literal place called heaven. And so Jesus is adjusting them, saying, yes, it exists. I have come from heaven, from my Father. But what you need to know is that there is a pathway to getting there. It is important. And once you understand that, you begin to understand some of the lessons behind what Jesus is teaching about these two parables in the kingdom of heaven, how to achieve salvation. So let me just go through five different lessons here. Number one, I think very clearly Jesus is saying to be saved... And that means to be born again, to have salvation, you must see it first as priceless. It has to be priceless. You and I know that if you know humanity at all, if you think about humanity and how people value such things, it's amazing what people put into what they do. I mean, people will literally give all of their life's earnings to obtain that one more priceless thing. They will change their lives. They'll do all kinds of crazy things, stunts and everything else to get what they really want, whether it's money or fame or both. I've told those of you in the church before that there are a couple shows on television. Don't judge me for this. A couple shows that I like that are, I don't know, they're just kind of real life. Uh, They're basically ungodly people, but they're interesting. Uh, One of them is the show Gold Rush on on the uh, Discovery Channel. What's fascinating to me about it is not only just kind of the work that goes into it, uh, but what these people give up to have this little gold flaky stuff because of the value with which it brings. They go through equipment failures, spending literally their life fortunes 
everything that they have in savings, literally leaving people, giving up relationships, all for the sake of inheriting this wealth. There's another part of part two of that particular show. One is set in the Yukon, the other one's set in another part, kind of a Canadian region, where this guy goes in with his team and goes underwater in these rivers, if you will, in the cracks and the crevices and vacuums out debris to find the mother load. And it's just amazing what they go through. And I'm thinking, I would never do that. Like, that's just, why would you do that? Well, people do it because of what they think they can get. In fact, the one guy on the one show says all the time, this is finally going to do it. I'm going to be rich. And the whole episode, all the episodes are about that. There's others, like if you watch Discovery, you also know of The Deadliest Catch, the new season's just come on, of the crab fishermen in the Bering Sea. If you ever watched that, these guys ride these boats like they're roller coasters across the 20-foot, 30-foot waves, smashing into the sides of the boat. Some of them literally lose their lives, and I'm sitting there thinking, for crabs? Now, if you've been to Costco lately, I don't know if you have or not. <laughs> but one of the prizes is, are the, the king crabs. You ever seen a king crab? They're monsters. I was in Costco just a couple weeks ago, and I said to Debbie, I said, let's go look at those. One box, one box like this of just one set of crab legs, $450. Who's going to buy that for the next church fellowship? <laughs> They do it because it's a sense of manhood in it, but they do it mostly because of the prize. It is staggering. And again, literally almost every season, there's some episode where somebody has died, a ship has sunk or something. Uh, One guy uh, who's just rough as a cob, uh, he has totally, or at least according to the episodes, ruined his relationship with his son. It's just really sad to me. And so I could go on and on. I don't have to tell you all about that. You just understand that there are certain things that people go after because of the value behind them. And so in in these two parables, both of these people understood what they had. They were physically holding something of such uniqueness and rarity of find that they literally sold everything that they had in order to obtain it. But Jesus is saying that was the right thing in this case when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. So the Lord's point is there's nothing more valuable and this should be the message that we hear this morning. There's nothing more valuable, beloved, than obtaining salvation. That's the Lord's message. There's nothing you can do, earn, keep, have in this life that's compared to the pricelessness of salvation, which is what's so beautiful about watching Esther this morning. Isn't it amazing? That she in her little heart, eight years old, smart as she is, is understanding through the power of the Spirit that there is a priceless value to taking Jesus into her heart and following her with her life. It's precious and it's well understood. In fact, Peter, in 1 Peter 1, he says this to the church of the dispersed Jews who are under great persecution. He's refocusing their minds because of the persecution. And he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again 
Listen to what he says here. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's why. Verse 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Is that not awesome? You know what I hear Peter saying to the believers? Hey, get your eyes off the world because God has a key that only belongs to you, that's reserved for you for your place in the kingdom. And it's never going to go away. To receive it takes a heart of understanding of the value of it. That's the critical part. Which is why that person will give their full heart to the Lord because they know what they're getting. Just yesterday, Debbie and I were at a little music festival. We saw Hannah there. And uh, there was a second singer. There was three groups that were playing. The second singer was Ed Fuller. Is that right, honey? Is that his name? Uh, Ben Fuller. Um, Only been saved for two and a half years. Lived an incredibly difficult life. And this was his testimony. He shared this. He's a songwriter. Great voice. But his heart was just so in love with the Lord. You could just tell from him that he had such a passion. And he, he was a, a good example in my mind of somebody that understood what he had gained. He talked about the life that he had lived and how tragic it was and his relationships even with his father and, and uh, living in the life up in the north. And he knew he had a lot of talent, so he made his way down to Nashville and was planning on making a career out of country music, which you can kind of hear that in his voice. But then the Lord got his heart and his, his song, one of his songs talks about how God found me. And he changed him so radically, he said, you're going to sing, but you're going to sing for me the rest of your life. And he says, I'll gladly do that. Now, why would anybody do that? Because they understand the value of what's been given to them. And that's Jesus's point here. So let's go on to the second one here. To be saved, now not only we need to understand the pricelessness of it, but it takes intentionality. It takes being intentional. To find salvation. And for what Jesus is saying in the parables here, it's pretty obvious that both people were very intentional in their pursuit of the treasures. Think about it. They labored. They planned, obviously. I see this treasure. Got to work out the details of how to get it. They purchased or made a transaction. In other words, they purposefully made a way to achieve the goal that they wanted, was to have these treasures. Now, let me be clear in saying, you should know this, I hope you understand this, that salvation is not a result of our works. The Apostle Paul made that very clear. The Lord's made that clear. It is an act of grace. Christian and Caroline just sang that for us. It is totally by God's grace, but we are to be involved in the process. The Lord requires us to accept what he is offering to us. Now, I'm not talking about outward works again. I'm keeping the focus on the internal part of this because many, many people are intentional about spiritual lives or their spiritual lives outwardly, right? I mean, there are many, many, many faithful people to Sunday mornings. There are faithful people to doing spiritual things, listening to biblical preaching and teaching throughout their lives. There are people who are baptized, and even become members of churches but are never truly born again. And that's because they're intentional. But they're not intentional about their hearts changing. And the Lord is always about 
the intentionality of changing our hearts. Now again, I'm not saying either that salvation is up to you or me alone. That's not the case. What I am saying is it takes an intentional, purposeful desire on our own part to recognize its value. We already talked about that. But also intentional about accepting and recognizing our sinful condition. That takes an intentional heart, intentional mind. Intentional about repenting. Once we see the need for God's grace, we are intentional about crying out for his mercy, his forgiveness. And then we're intentional about walking with him and living life with him. All these things have to fit together because we know what's at stake. We know what's at stake. Our eternal destiny is at stake. And we understand what God has done for us, the sacrifice God has made for us so that we can have this great and amazing treasure. And so you become intentional in following him all your life. Debbie and I had another really neat experience this past week. Um, There's a young man who was a former UVA football player, uh, did very well. Uh, His name is Vince. Vince, uh, I think I'm pronouncing it right. Croce, is that right, Jeff? Does that sound right? You remember that name? Um, had a neat dinner with him the other night. He has uh, he left UVA and went to UCLA to be the strength coach for the girls' softball team. He came back as a call or for a call to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and he just talked to us the other night about the changes of his life. And it was just a really really precious time. And he talked about how he had to be intentional about what it means to follow the Lord. And so one day I'm going to have Vince come and you're going to see why I'm going to have him be my bodyguard uh, to protect you, uh, protect me from you. And um, when you see him, you won't give me any lip. I, I, I promise you that because he will just like bite your head off and, you know, just, well, anyway, we'll get back to the text here. Super guy, loves the Lord and really been radically changed. Okay, number three. To be saved, there also must be a willingness to forsake even the most important things and even perhaps the people in your life. I want to be very careful with this one because I don't want you to miss the point. I think every one of us knows the challenges of letting go of the things that are important to us. And I'm talking about the things that are really important to us. And that's because life is hard. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. To achieve anything that you consider valuable takes a lot of effort. I mean, how many of you all have spent years and years on things like education? It's certainly been Caroline as a nurse. Those of you who are in the business world, those of you who have uh, literally dedicated your life to achieving what you have now. um, How many of you all remember the times you had to give up something special in order to make those goals reality? You remember those, right? They're unique to you, no doubt. Maybe the time that you had to give up when you were with others. I remember when we took our first trip to Hawaii, I was working on my uh, Master Divinity degree online and the family was enjoying Hawaii in the room there and I was like, okay, great. (laughs) I have to study. (laughs) And so you understand, right? We all have these times where We're achieving something that's critical to us and you know the sacrifices that are required of it. How many of you have spent most of your life 
getting to where you are now and the effort that it took required so much. And so the Lord's point really is to be saved means that all that is important to us in this life and everything else must pale in comparison to the value that the Lord has for us. And even much more challenging than giving up the material things to be willing to forsake the people of our lives if necessary. Now let me read the Lord's words here so you understand what he's saying. Luke 14, 25 through 33, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, before you misunderstand what the Lord's saying here with the word hate, he's not talking about that vehement, ungodly hatred. He's talking about priorities. And that's just the Greek word that was used here to make the point. It's the most intense type of setting aside what's less important for the most important, even when it comes to relationships. He says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he's not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And here's the, the catch to it all in verse 33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. And quite literally, the Lord is saying, you may be in a situation where your family is against you as a Christian. They may have different thoughts about what life should be for you. We are to never be rude. We're never to be unkind. We're always to be honoring, but we have to make a decision even when it comes to not just possessions, but the people in our lives, because Jesus must be first. In fact, John MacArthur said this in his commentary on this section, only those willing to carefully assess the cost and invest all they had in his kingdom were worthy to enter. This speaks of something far more than mere abandonment of one's material possessions. It is an absolute, unconditional surrender. His disciples were permitted to retain no privileges and make no demands. They were to safeguard no cherished sins, treasure no earthly possessions, and cling to no secret self-indulgences. Their commitment to him must be without reservation. And that, if you've followed the story, you know they left family, they left friends, they gave up their livelihood. They were fishermen and other sorts, abandoning, abandoning everything that they wanted for the sake of the Lord's call in their life. Often, even we know from Scripture, the Gospels record these things, wondering whether they would even have enough to eat until the Lord proves himself to be capable of taking care of their food, even in the midst of feeding 5,000 people, for example. And I think anybody who has heard the call of salvation and heard the message of the Spirit speaking to the heart understands it's not easy at times. It's really not. For anybody to say that it's easy and life as a Christian is a piece of cake doesn't understand the Christian life. It's very contrary to the things of the world. 
You fight within yourself sometimes for the things that you want in this life. You look at your neighbors and the people around you and you wish you had this or that. But all the while, you know in the back of your mind the Spirit has called you this direction and you have to follow Him. Where you want to live, what you want to accomplish in this life. You know, even the greatest of Christian leaders have personal goals and they have desires and want-tos in this life. But there's that call of God that just will not let you go. And every true believer understands that. It doesn't have to be a pastor. It doesn't have to be anybody else. Just a child of God understands these things. You know, there's a struggle at times for Christians to make enough money to live and to survive. How many of you all understand that? Because you're not willing to work in some place that would require something ungodly of you. Where maybe you could make a lot of money and have a great earning, but you'd compromise your stance on what you believe is right and wrong biblically. And so you give it up. You understand all of that. Uh, Debbie and I know a man that she grew up under, actually, as an associate pastor. I did after our married life began. Uh, Brother Earl Clarkson, he wouldn't mind me telling you, this is a great evangelist. But the story about Brother Earl is he was working for years and years and years in the Lynchburg foundry. And he had moved all the way to the top. And he had lived a kind of an ungodly life, but God saved him and And he was having more of a heart to follow the Lord. And they wanted to move him to another facility to be the top dog of the foundry. And he had the call of God in his life to go into ministry. And he told him he wasn't going to be taking it. And and, and they called in the, the company counselor and the psychologist because they thought he had literally lost his mind. But he says, no. And they said, oh, man, the church must be going to pay you a whole lot more than we're going to pay you. And he's like, no, actually, it's peanuts. And again, they thought he lost his mind, but yet he went on and he has served the Lord faithfully all those years. What makes missionaries leave their families and friends and go off to foreign places? Why would anybody do that? Because of the things that the Lord is teaching us. They understand the value. What makes a person go to an undisclosed location and not able to share where they are for fear that the authorities might find out that they're Christians and take all of their belongings or worse, take their lives. To go under the cover of darkness to just have a Bible study. To literally protect their lives and their families' lives just to hear the word of the Lord. It's the same thing. But I can tell you this, that it is the greatest life that any of God's people, any of God's creation can have. It's not child's play. It's not. It's not child's play to be a Christian. It takes great dedication, but it is the path of eternal life and the life of eternal joy. And you remember when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, he said things like this in Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. Isn't it interesting that the Lord didn't have to define that very much? Deuteronomy 4.24, at the retelling after the new people were ready to go into the promised land, the Lord says, He is a consuming fire and a jealous God. I say, I don't know if I like a jealous God. Well, listen, if you're the God of all gods, you don't answer to anybody. And you can be who you are. Remember the story of Abraham, how God had promised to bless him abundantly? You remember the test that God put Abraham under? 
He promised Abraham that he would create a nation from his own body. And so many, many, many years later, he has a son named Isaac. And God says, here's what I want you to do with Isaac. I want you to go sacrifice him to me. What? Can you imagine Abraham's heart at that moment? His only son of his own body from he and Sarah, I mean. Not talking about Ishmael. And so just as he's about to put the dagger into the heart of Isaac, the Lord stops him, not because God needed to know, but because Abraham needed to know. God doesn't need to know whether we have faith or not. We need to know. Because it's at that point where the true dedicated heart begins to come alive. And we live for him in the ways that he has called us to live. It's it's so important to understand that. God knew that Abraham needed to know that Abraham truly was willing to follow God no matter what God asked of him. Because that was the price of the place that God had him. And God requires the same of everyone who will be saved. Which is why Jesus will say, or has said in chapter 10, if you remember this, verse 39, he who has found his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And all of this Jesus is talking about. Let's go on now to number four. This is the good news. Salvation is the path to true joy. It's the path to true joy. You know, one of the greatest tragedies in my mind of Adam and Eve's sin back in the garden was that not only did sin enter the picture, but man lost his joy. Can you imagine the joy that Adam and Eve must have had before sin? There was no sin, and so they had a perfect communion with the Lord. And the joy that must have come from that, the inner peace and contentment that God can only alone give. But the misery of sin, partly in this context, is that sin so robbed man that he lost the ability to achieve and have joy between himself and his creator outside of God doing the work to bring him back into that joy. And man, ever since, listen, you just look outside at humanity and you will see man's pursuit of joy. That's what he's after. If I could just have that house, if I could just have this, or if I could just work hard enough to do this or that, joy would be mine, and he spends his entire existence after it. And he cannot achieve it. And he exhausts themselves trying to find it. The point is that only God alone can provide what man needs. And it is through salvation that joy comes because, listen, everything in this life ends, doesn't it? I mean, everything's either going to rust or rot, like it or not. Whatever we own is eventually going to lose its excitement because nothing is ever good enough, which is why, again, people scurry to find the next best thing. Even partners, people in their lives. Our bodies wear out, amen? Which is one day why the funeral director is going to show up at your door. True story. Right? One day, the funeral director is going to come to your house looking for you. The issue will be, where will you be? Worthy of thinking about. All of that just puts a tailspin on humanity desperately seeking 
the joy that he or she so much wants. Jesus' point is you're not going to find it until you humble yourself and see your need for me and you surrender to me and I will give you what you long for. Listen to what he says in Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Listen, it's not about achieving the goal of this place, but righteousness and peace, and here it is, joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy. Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. Very clear. So really, you can almost hear the Lord saying this in the parable. Keep searching for the joy that you want, but the real prize and joy is found in the treasure, which is salvation. And he wants that for you, which takes us to the final point. Salvation is available for anybody who wants it, no matter who you are or where you've been. And these parables show that. You know, one of the Satan's greatest lies, I believe, is that if you've been too bad or you've made too many mistakes, it's just not going to work. God's just not going to take you. Or if you work hard enough, then God will take you if you're a good enough person. But the parable teaches us here that anybody can come. And it's evidenced by the two people. Notice the one man who was just doing his job, evidently plowing the field, When he stumbles upon the treasure, the other man was just diligently searching for, as a merchant, that next best pearl. Both two different ends of the spectrum. One's a businessman, the other's a laborer. Totally different occupations, but they both find the prize, just in different ways. Some of you have come from great hardship of life. You look back on your past and you realize how difficult things were, but you found Jesus. Or better yet, he found you. And he rescued you out of that life. And you have salvation. Some of you came from wealth and notoriety. You had people in your family that were well known. And you came from people of great influence. And you met the Lord Jesus Christ. Others of you grew up right here in Albemarle County or Greene County. And you've met Jesus. And he's changed you. Some of you were farmers. Others from the city. Some of you grew up hearing the gospel all your life. And Jesus found you, being a part of a church, some of others' churches. But others of you don't know about or didn't know about Christ and his salvation until much later in life. None of that matters. What matters is, is that you see the value of what Christ offers to anybody. Don't let Satan tell you a lie that it's only for certain people and you can't have it. That is exactly what it is, a lie. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 23, and we'll be done. If anyone, hear the words, beloved. You remember Jesus said that not one jot, not one tittle, those are Greek letters, exclamation points, the smallest of emphasis in the Greek uh, uh, language. Not any of that will pass away. So listen to every word. He says, if anyone, You and I are the anyones. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. There's the obedience, the sacrifice, the cost. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode or our home in him. Anyone. Anyone. I wish you could have heard the guy last night. Again, I've already mentioned him, but the testimony. 
that he shared about the misery of his life. In fact, the first song, uh, Debbie and I were kind of questioning, was he writing that about him? Because it talks about how he was in the process of about to, to kill himself. It talks about holding the gun and the, the shells. And, and beloved, just, you just look at the news and look at the people that are taking their own lives. The precious young girl who was a softball player just the other day had such a wonderful weekend of, of, of triumph on the softball field, and the next day she takes her life. And she's just one of thousands of people that are so desperately, hopelessly looking for joy and peace in the wrong places. And Jesus simply says, anyone can have what I offer you. You just have to take it. So I don't know your story, but what I do know is whatever you're doing, whatever you're looking for, whatever you're hoping for, whatever you've tried, the kingdom of God is priceless. Seek it that way. Enjoy what God gives you. It deserves all of your energy. It takes intentionality, purposefulness on repentance and trusting in who he is and a willingness to forsake everything in your life. Not that God will take your oldest child, okay? Some people are afraid, and, and it kind of is laughable a little bit, but some people say, well, what, what if God makes me do this? I mean, if I give my life to him, what if he takes something from me? Well, I wish I could say I understood God's mind fully. I don't. I don't know why God does what he does, but what I do know is what Jesus has taught us and what his word teaches us is that he loves us. And no matter what challenges we have in this life, Understand that we live in a broken world, a sin-cursed world that the Lord came to rescue us out of. Not fix. That's coming. He came to rescue us so that we would have eternal life in the midst of a broken world. So don't look at this world. Don't look at your life and try to understand why it's so broken. Just understand it's broken because you're sinful and we're in a sinful world. But God came to deliver you from it eternally, spiritually. We leave this body in the dirt and he gives us a new body. That's another message. Because he loves you. All right, well, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, uh, what a glorious day it is to uh, just celebrate the baptism of a precious child Lord, that should give us evidence enough of everything we're talking about here. Esther's such a smart, talented, bright young girl. But Lord, even an eight-year-old can accept you. Lord, how much more can those who are older in life, like even Ms. Brown, 94 years old, opposite ends of the spectrum in age, and yet still both desiring to follow you? Because you put that in them. And so, Father, I pray as we close out our time here together that we would leave this place hearing the seriousness of what is required of us and what you want to be a part of the working of our salvation, but yet understanding that it is you who does the work and we just receive it and then live for you. Not from our heads alone, but from our hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today or listening online that needs to know that there is a God who loves them, I pray that you would make that very clear. 
Lord, as we play through this final song, Christian and Caroline play, I pray that whatever work you want to do in the hearts of anyone, if they need to come forward, there'll be some men here to pray for them. Lord, if they just need to chat afterwards, Lord, whatever it is, help them to know this doesn't have to be hard. It's just simply saying, Lord, I need you. Come into my life. I surrender everything. And Lord, we, are, we know that you will do just that. So Lord, we pray that you would do your work now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all stand with us? Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain. I could not climb in desperation. I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. It's finished, the end is written, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine? Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. Amen. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Oh, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Sing hallelujah. And hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Sing hallelujah. And hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope.
sealed the promise your very body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me then came the morning then came the morning that sealed the promise your very body began to breathe out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me oh jesus yours is the victory sing hallelujah because hallelujah praise the one who set me free grip on me you have broken every chain there's salvation in your name jesus christ my living hope and hallelujah praise the one who set me free hallelujah death has lost its grip on me salvation in your name Jesus Christ my living hope Jesus Christ my living hope Jesus Christ my living hope God um, I'm in awe of you and um Sometimes it takes the to um, to see the magnitude of my sin and our brokenness to understand the greatness of salvation and of of your glory and um, of your love for us that you would um, that you would love us despite um, the fact that we always chase after other things that are not you and we always seem to find something else to take your place but um, you're always there and you're always faithful to us and if we um, receive your gift of salvation, and uh, we have a living hope, and um, the work is finished, and there's nothing else we have to do. Um, we praise you so much for that. We thank you so much for this this time this morning to be reminded of that and to worship and glorify your name through song and through um, a, a word from, um, from the Bible. And so I pray all this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.